As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the land, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? And they said to him, From a very distant country, your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food. For the journey on the day we set out to come to you, but now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst, and these garments and the sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Jephirah, Baroth, and kiriath Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you? When you dwell among us, now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servants, Moses, to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill him. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood 
and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Let's pray. Our Father, as we read this chapter, help us to be affected by your words. Grant us understanding, and may we know your transforming work by your Spirit as we contemplate this piece of the history of Israel, which is written down for our benefit, that we might grow and mature in Christ. As in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Well, I wonder what thoughts you had as we read this chapter. It's a rather interesting chapter, and it seems to raise more questions than it answers. There's ambiguity in it. Um, I might even say it's kind of unsatisfying. We want more. We want more that's specific and direct about how we should understand it. But that's one of the beauties, we might say, of the Hebrew Scriptures, the wisdom of the Hebrew Scriptures. It doesn't always make things obvious. And so it forces us, it forces the reader to wrestle with the contents. What happens here? Why did that happen? What's God thinking about this? Why did they say that? What are the implications? What kind of moral judgment should we make about what we see in the chapter? But the chapter itself doesn't provide all the answers that we might have. It provides some, but in ways maybe we might not see. And so it's not just what the chapter says. It's also, and this is the beauty of the wisdom of Hebrew Scripture, it's what it's doing to us. It's affecting us. Provoking us with questions and reflections. So as we look at this chapter, we come to this chapter, and we come with the usual big questions that we come as we read any chapter of Scripture. What's the significance of this chapter in the structure of the book? Or why is this important to the history of Israel? Or what is God doing through this particular I think maybe a way to bring these together is um, a summarizing question I think will help orient us to this chapter. And this summarizing question, I believe that we should ultimately ask about this chapter, is this. Why isn't Gibeon devoted to destruction? Now, this word devoted to destruction, we've talked about this from Jericho. We talked about it last week, this Hebrew word, cherem. The people of Jericho, the city of Jericho, was devoted to destruction, utterly destroyed, of course, except for Rahab and her family. And we see that in Ai as well. But why isn't Gibeon? Why isn't Gibeon devoted to destruction? As we think about this, I want to read again from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 7, because I want us to again to feel the weight of God's instructions to the people of Israel, His command upon them about what they are to do when they enter into the promised land. So Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it. This is Deuteronomy 7. Sorry, I'm going fast here. Uh, Deuteronomy 7. Um, And He clears away many nations before you. 
the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations... Should I put the other microphone in? Okay, we're doing some... Please bear with us here for a moment. Okay, how's that? Okay, we'll give that a try. Where were we? The Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. So with, with these commands, with these instructions from Deuteronomy 7, 7 ringing in our minds, as we come to this chapter, we ask some questions. Why aren't the Gibeonites utterly destroyed? And why isn't God angry with the people of Israel, or at least in this chapter, why don't we see evidence of God's anger? So as the chapter opens, we're going to go through, I'm just going to kind of go through this chapter, look at some details, and then make some kind of concluding comments to try and draw together and answer some of the questions that we might have. So firstly, as the chapter opens, we see a contrast, a strong contrast between Gibeon and all the other nations. The chapter begins that as soon as the kings beyond the Jordan heard about what was happening, they heard about Jericho, they heard about Ai, they verse to gather together to fight against Joshua. They've heard what's happening and they're like, our only hope of survival is if we fight and destroy the people of Israel. But look at verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted. So here's the strong contrast. All the other people of the area, all the other nations, they hear what's happening and they set their hearts against God and against God's people, the Israelites. On the other hand, the people of Gibeon act in the opposite way. They stand out from all the other groups in Canaan in their response. They don't join with them. Instead, they make a break from them. They don't draw any allegiances. They don't make any connections. They don't make any covenants with those other kings. They don't meet with them. They don't gather with them. Instead, they go to the people of Israel seeking a covenant of peace. Now, what motivates them? I'm going to jump ahead to verse 24. Just quickly to see something of their motivation. Verse 24. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the land. The people of Gideon are absolutely confident. There's no uncertainty in their mind. The God of the people of Israel, Yahweh, has given the land to the people of Israel. And there's nothing that's going to stop that. So the Gibeonites look at these kings and say, well, that's very good, but you're going to be unsuccessful because we're confident that Yahweh will do what he's promised to do. They have this confidence. 
the, the other nations, they think they can rage and war against God's people and win. So there's a strong contrast here between the response of all the other nations and the response of the Gibeonites. But let's consider their situation. The town of Gibeon is about eight miles west of Ai. Not far. Far enough for them to have known what happened at Ai. So they're aware of the victories at Jericho and the victories at Ai. And they are certain that Yahweh, the God of Israel, has given the land into the hands of the people of Israel. They're certain of this. And it would also seem, being aware of the words of Yahweh to Moses, that they are also aware of the instructions given to Moses and the people of Israel, that they can make covenants with people outside of the land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 20, there are some instructions about what that would look like. The people of Israel are instructed for nations outside the land, if they go to them, they can talk to the people of the city, and if the city, are willing, if the, the city is willing to make peace, then they can make a covenant of peace, and they must be subservient to Israel. But if they resist the peacemaking efforts, then they will be utterly destroyed. So it seems like the people of Gibeon have some access to the law of Moses. They have certainty about what God will do for the people of Israel. They know something about the instructions given to Israel about making peace. And so here's their situation. There's certainty that they'll be destroyed. And they're thinking, hang on. So if we as a people go from Gibeon to Joshua and say, hey, we're from Gibeon, we want peace. Their understanding is it wouldn't happen. Because they would be coming from a city inside the promised land and not outside. So they know that wouldn't work. They're, they're confident of Yahweh's words. So they are sure there's no way they could defeat the Israelites. They would be destroyed. And so the elders and the people of Gibeon devise a plan which seems to be the only possible way for survival. And so they come up with a high-stakes plan for deliverance. This is risk all, one option for hope, one option for survival. So we read in verse 4, they, on their part, acted with cunning. Now, this word cunning is kind of interesting. It can be used positively. It can be used negatively. In the book of Proverbs, it's used numerous times positively. For example, Proverbs 1.4. Um, we see that wisdom gives prudence. That's that word, prudence, to the simple. So this word can be translated prudence. Savviness about life. You understand the way life works, you can see the future, and you prudentially make decisions. So that's a positive use. There are a few negative uses. Exodus 21.14, speaking of premeditated murder. If a man willfully attacks another to kill him, by cunning, there's that word. So positive meaning, prudence, negative meaning, cunning. I think Joshua's playing off this this ambiguity. These people of Gibeon have thought about all their options. They're acting prudentially. They're trusting the words of God. 
They believe they will be destroyed. They're in a city in the land of of, of the promised land. So they, they know they can't make peace. So they've figured out the only option that they can conceive of, of making peace with the people of Israel, is pretending that they're from a nation outside of the promised land. So they act prudentially and they act with cunning. To pull this off, they have to use some deception. It's kind of a little like what we see in Joshua 2 with Rahab. She is absolutely certain that Yahweh, the God of Israel, has given the land to the people of Israel. And she uses deception as well. And her use of deception is an expression. It's a living out of her transfer of allegiance from her people, her kindred, the people of Jericho, to her allegiance to Yahweh, the God of Israel. So the people of Gibeon travel, and we see in verse 6, they turn up at the camp in Gilgal, and they go to Joshua and the men of Israel. I like how verse 7 emphasizes something of these people. They are the Hivites. So the people of Gibeon are of this larger group, the Hivites, and we read back in Deuteronomy, the people of Israel should destroy the Hivites who live in the land of Canaan. Well, we see that the men of Israel are suspicious. Verse 7, perhaps you live among us. And if that is the case, we certainly cannot make a covenant with you. I'm adding a few extra words in there. You, you see that they're very aware of the commands of Moses. They're very aware of their obligations. They've learned some lessons just recently. Remember what happened to Achan? Don't try and thwart God's plans. It won't work. You can't outsmart God. If God has said something, submit to it. And so the people of Israel are suspicious. I wonder what went through the hearts and minds of this delegation from Gibeon at this point. I can imagine their heart rate picks up. Stay calm. Be cool. They might be on to us here. How are we going to respond? So they add, verse 8, we are your servants. Again, we're in a place of submissiveness. Verse 9, now they say, not we're from a distant country. We are from a very different, distant country. They're kind of amping up this in their response. And um, we, we see them being conti- continue to be a little ambiguous. They don't give any specifics. They're just from a very distant country. But look at how they express their perspective, reading on in verse 9. They've come. They're presenting them as being the servants of Israel because of the name of the Lord your God, Yahweh. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Zion, king of Heshbon, Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand, go on a journey, go meet them and say, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. And so they say, look, 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 at our, look at our provisions. Look at our clothes. 
It must be the case that we've come from a very distant land. Well, this high-stakes plan for deliverance now moves in and look at verse 14 to what is evidently here a failure of the people of Israel to lead. A failure of the people of Israel to trust the Lord. And their failure leads to a covenant of peace being made. We read that the leaders were successfully tricked. Look at verse um, 14. So the men took some of their provisions. And the sense is they took it, kind of looked at it, touched it, broke the stale bread, and were taken in by the ruse. They accepted their explanation that they were people from a distant land. It's kind of surprising. You know, as we read the text, it's like, how dumb could they be? They're suspicious. They ask particular questions. Joshua says to them, who are you? Where do you come from? And the people of Gibeon are utterly evasive. They don't say, oh, we're from a country way up north. They don't lie about a country way out east. They give no specifics of region or people or ethnic groups. No directions. Nothing. This is one of the things of the text which is a little inexplicable. How is it that they could be so dumb? But we notice something of their outlook, of their attitude. Second part of verse 14. They took their provisions, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. Here is their utter failure. The people of Israel, the leaders of Israel... And Joshua himself, they have failed in their leadership responsibilities. Back in Numbers 27, at the commissioning of Joshua, Moses particularly says to Joshua, here are the things you should do when you lead. Verse 27, 21. And he shall stand before Eleazar. This is Moses' instructions regarding Joshua. Joshua should stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. So Joshua was to stand before, before the high priest. When questions came up in his leadership role, Joshua was to go to the priest and say, what should I do? What direction does God give? And God gave provision for direction through the high priest and the Urim and the Thummim. How exactly it works, we don't know. But somehow, through these um, um, vestments and stones that the high priest would have some indication from God about what choice to make. So Joshua fails, and the people of Israel fail to specifically go to the Lord and ask him, what should we do? Now, I want to pause here for a moment, and I want you to reflect on how you're reading the text. And one of the ways you might have an idea of how you're reading the text is how you might answer this question. What would have been the result if Joshua and the leaders had inquired and so had discovered the deception? What would have happened? Would they have destroyed Gibeon and devoted them to destruction? 
Or might there have been some other outcome? Maybe one other question we can ask at this point, which I'm not going to answer yet, but I want to provoke a question, is who experiences the greatest negative consequences of their failure? Or we might say, what are the actual consequences of their failure? Well, the text doesn't tell us at this point. It just states this reality, that they were taken in by the ruse, that they made a covenant, and that they failed to seek direction from the Lord. Well, let's move on to the next section, beginning in verse 16, where we see the complexity of the situation developing. There's complexity here of competing obligations. I thought about the the title of this point, and maybe we could title it Between a Rock and a Hard Place. It's the way the people of Israel feel. What should we do? Well, the Gibeonites knew that their deceit could not be kept up. Their goal was only that the deceit could be kept up long enough for the agreement of peace to be made. At some point, they knew they were going to have to come clean because the people of Israel would have gone into the land and they would have come to the city of Gibeon and they would have got ready to destroy it. And at that point, the people of Gibeon would have had to come clean and say, Uh, those people you made an agreement with, that's us. You can't destroy us. So this ruse is only a short-term ruse in order to get this covenant of peace to be established. Now, as we look at verses 16 and 17, it's not quite clear how we should read these. Maybe we should read 16 and 17 sequentially. Verse 16 happened, then verse 17 happened. Or maybe verse 16 is an overview and verse 17 is giving more details. Now, if you read it sequentially, here's what it would be. Verse 16, after three days, or the end of three days, the people of Israel figure out the truth. And they are so incensed that they have been tricked. They march up to Gibeon in their anger, maybe to prove that this is actually their true identity, Or whatever the case is, they respond to the discovery with the sense of anger, and then they march to Gibeon. I'm inclined, and this is is not dead certainty, I'm just saying, my inclination as I read the text, I'm not going to die on this hill, but I think as I read the text, my inclination is that this is not to be read sequentially, but rather... Verse 16 as an overview and verse 17 as giving more detail. That is, that at the end of three days, they find out the truth. And then in verse 17, the third day is the third day of the three days. So verse 16 kind of gives a bit of an overview of what happens. And then verse 17 kind of steps back and gives a little more detail about how it came out that this was deceit. And how it came out that these men were actually the Gibeonites. So it seems reading in verse 17 that the people of Israel head out from camp towards Gibeon and they reach the city on the third day and they're headed there in their campaign to press into the promised land and to take the country. Um, Midway through verse 17, now there are cities where Gibeon 
Jephthah, Baroth, and Kiriath Jerim. So they're headed there, but we look at verse 18. But the people of Israel did not attack them. Why? Because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. They're headed, and they want to take these cities. They're the cities of the Canaanites, the Hivites, to destroy them. And they get there, and they don't attack them because the leaders make the connection. These people we made an agreement with, this covenant of peace, are the people who live in this city. Don't attack. The people of Israel, they're ready for war. And they're angry. What are you doing? Why did you make this covenant of peace? And so they're murmuring. They're frustrated. And so now the leaders of Israel are faced with the conundrum. They're at the gates, as it were, of Gibeon. What are they going to do? Verse 19. So the leaders say to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. We can't go in. We've made a covenant of peace. We've made a covenant of peace in the name of Yahweh, our God. We must not go back on that covenant of peace. But we also have this other obligation that as we go into the land of Canaan, we need to subdue and destroy. Verse 20, this we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, lest we incur God's wrath by killing them. Verse 21 We'll let them live, but we'll also make them our slaves. We'll subjugate them. So that's the solution that the leaders of Israel come up with as they are faced with this moral conundrum. It's not just a moral conundrum, so they do this or this. It's a conundrum that's a life or death conundrum. If they break the covenant, God will destroy them. We're not going to do that. But God has an obligation upon us to do something with the people who live in this land. So we'll make them our servants. Now, as we're reading the text, we might say, did they make the right decision? Should they have done this? Was this the way to work through this complexity? We don't know yet. All we know is what they did. And we do know from earlier in the chapter that they didn't seek counsel from the Lord earlier on. And I'm suspicious that maybe they're not seeking counsel at this point either. Now, as you go to verse 22, we see a little more detail. Joshua steps in, and now Joshua speaks directly to the people. He speaks a curse, and he also delivers them. In the previous verses, the focus is just on the people of Israel. The people of Israel go up to Gibeon. They pause. The people murmur. The leaders talk to the people of Israel. But now when we go to verse 22, Joshua summons the Gibeonites. And now in verse 22, we have Joshua speaking directly to the people of Gibeon. I wonder what the Gibeonites thought. Here's their city. The nation of Israel, the army of Israel marches up to take over. They say, hey, you can't do that. We made a covenant of peace. It's us. And Joshua says, okay, you guys who came down and lied to us in Gilgal, I want to have a conversation with you. I wonder how the Gibeonites felt at that point. 
It's going to happen. Is Joshua going to stay faithful to the covenant of peace? We still might end up being devoted to destruction. What's going to happen? And so Joshua interrogates them in verse 22. Why did you deceive us saying we are, from a ver- we are very far from you when in actuality you dwell among us? And now we see the Gibeonites giving an explanation for their behavior. They don't bargain. They don't negotiate. They just simply express what motivated them to do what they did. What compelled them to do what they did. So we see in verse 24, they answered Joshua, because it was told to us, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. What motivated them? Fear that God would do exactly what he said he would do. And they didn't want to be destroyed. They wanted to live. And that's what motivated them. And as I said earlier, I think they prudentially considered all their options and said our only option, the only possibility of survival is to go into seat and try and get this covenant of peace made. We learn back in verse 23 now, something of Joshua's attitude towards them. Now, therefore, you are cursed. And some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, drawers of water for the house of my God. So Joshua pronounces a curse. At this point, we go, hang on. Do you curse good people or bad people? Well, similarly, a curse is like a bad thing. Is this curse like a curse of judgment? How do we understand this curse? Does this curse tell us something about the way God thinks of the Gibeonites? Well, it's kind of an ironic curse, we might say. The curse is a curse of servitude, but where would they serve? Where would you put cursed, scummy people? Would you have them serve at the house of the Lord and at the altar of God? Verse 23, verse 27. That's kind of strange. So the first thing that's ironic about this curse is the placement. And and that should cause us to go, okay, I, I, I think I know what curses are, but maybe I need to rearrange my thinking about what curses are. What's happening here with, this almost sounds like a blessing in a curse. But as we look at Scripture, we will be further provoked to see this is an interesting kind of curse. These terms, cutters of wood and drawers of water, these express not just a curse of servitude, but a servitude that assumes a certain connection to the people of Israel. Please go with me to Deuteronomy 29. There's an interesting verse here which tells us something about how we should understand this servitude of cutters of wood and drawers of water. In Deuteronomy 29, the covenant is being renewed. And Moses says in verse 10, You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God. Who are the people who are 
who are participating in this covenant renewal. We get the detail of all those participating in verse 10. All of you, the heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp. So every part of Israelite society and those who are participating in Israelite society who aren't descended from Abraham, the sojourners, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water. All of these people, from the leaders of Israel all the way down to the child, the sojourner, the sojourner of great status, the sojourner of the most menial status, they are all considered to be enjoying the benefits of this covenant. So when, no, when we see these words being used here, it's not mere servitude. It's a servitude that allows for their inclusion into the life of the people of Israel. Interestingly enough, these don't seem to be um, mere reflections of servitude, but also particularly because in this area were lots of trees and deep wells. The city named Kiriath Jirim, town of woods. And the city name Biroth is Wells. And one of the largest cisterns uh, that's been discovered in the hill country is found in this location and pops up a few more times in the Old Testament. The final thing that we read in here as we're thinking about this ironic curse is what we read down in verse 26. So Joshua did this to them. And delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. Here we see Joshua, whose name means Yahweh is salvation, delivering the people of Gideon so they are not destroyed. They are devoted to the Lord, not in destruction, but in service, similar to the gold and the silver of Jericho. There's one other parallel that is very helpful as we think about this chapter, and that is Genesis 34. I'm not going to read it, but you might want to turn to Genesis 34. This chapter, Genesis 34, gives us further insight into what's happening in Joshua chapter 9. And similar to chapter, Joshua chapter 9, Genesis chapter 34 is a rather interesting passage in God's Word. In Genesis 34, Shechem, son of Hamor, rapes Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. So then Hamor, in behalf of his son, goes to Jacob and he begs Jacob for the people of Jacob's family to enter into covenant with him so that Shechem may marry Dinah and so that the people of Jacob might settle amongst this group of people. And the group of people are the Hivites. Well, Jacob's sons act deceitfully. They, they go along at first with this idea 
And they trick the people, Shechem, his father, and the people of the city, tricks them into having all their miles circumcised. And then on the third day, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, go against the city and they kill Hamor and Shechem and all the males. Pretty dastardly act. And then at the end of Genesis, in Genesis 49, we read Jacob pronouncing a curse on Simeon and Levi. Genesis 49 Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel." One of the consequences of the curse on Simeon and Levi is that their allotments in the promised land would be very different than the allotments of the rest of the tribes. The people of Levi would never have any allotment of land, land areas, and Simeon would be contained within Judah. But what kind of curse is this? Well, the Levites... Though they don't get an allotment of land, they get the allotment of serving in the temple and they get certain cities set aside for them. So it's kind of a curse. They don't get the same things as the rest of the brothers get. But in the curse is a blessing. And so we see, with some similarity here, something happening with the Gibeonites. They experience a curse for their deceitfulness, but it's a curse that ends up in a blessing Because now they are serving right in the heart of the religious life of the people of Israel. And we know the city of Gibeon becomes actually a Levite city. And so the people of Gideon, Gibeon, end up living right alongside the Levites. And so we see here, yes, it's an ironic curse. It's something that they experience consequences for their actions, but it turns out to be rich in blessing. Okay, so we need to wrap up with some, um, hopefully some, some satisfaction here, because you still might have some questions. I, I want to just touch on a, a, a few other things from this passage that hopefully will bring some resolution We get to the end of chapter 9, and we're still maybe scratching our head. What does God think about this? Should the people of Israel have made a covenant of peace with the people of Gibeon? Was it right that they should be given servitude? Was it right for Joshua to deliver them? What would have happened if they'd asked the wisdom of the Lord right at the beginning and discovered that the Gibeonites were acting deceitfully? What? Does Yahweh think? So we need to ferret around in Scripture a little. As you read on through Joshua, we come to a statement that gives us some insight. Joshua chapter 11 and verse 19. Now, the next chapter, chapter 10, gives further insight as well. And that will be an interesting passage to work through. But I want to go to 
Joshua 11:19 because we see something very clear. Joshua 11:19 There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. So the people of Israel took all the peoples in battle except for a group of the Hivites from the area of Gibeon. Verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. What inference do we draw from this? That it was the Lord's doing also that the people of Gibeon would not be devoted to destruction and would receive mercy. So again, we don't have all the answers we might want, but here we have a perspective that gives us something of God's view of what happens here. Joshua was doing some stuff, the people of Gibeon were doing some stuff, the leaders of Israel were doing some stuff, but behind it all, God was extending mercy to the people of Gibeon. Later on, as we read through the scriptures in 2 Samuel 21, we read of an event where Saul um, kills a whole bunch of Gibeonites. And the result of that is that there is a period of three-year famine in the land of Israel. King David appeals and says, why is this? And the Lord responds to David, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So what does God think about this covenant made with the Gibeonites? He holds the people of Israel to this covenant and God brings justice for the breaking of this covenant. God is behind this covenant of peace to the people of Gibeon of Gibeon. Further as we read through the uh, um the Old Testament, we don't see any incident inc- incident of the people of Gibeon drawing the hearts of the people of Israel away to idolatry. No record of that. In fact, to the contrary, we see a few moments where the Gibeonites are are recognized because of their faithful work in the nation of Israel. We read in 1 Chronicles 12, King David's mighty men of 30. One of those mighty men and the leader of those mighty men is Ishmael of Gibeon. There's there's a Gibeonite right in the center of power alongside King David. We read in Nehemiah 3 and 7 that the king, the, there's a peop, there's a group of people from Gibeon who returned from exile. So there were there were Gibeonites who were exiled with the people of Israel and then 70 years later they come back and there's record of them coming back and helping build the walls of Jerusalem. So we see every evidence that the people of Gibeon were faithful were seeking to definitely be a part of the people of Israel to be to give their allegiance to the God of Israel and to be faithful in their place amongst the people of Israel so why weren't the inhabitants of Gibeon devoted to destruction because they were a people like Rahab who trusted Yahweh and he extended mercy to them though Joshua did not consult Yahweh 
This does not mean they should not have been spared. Rather, Yahweh was not hindered. The God of Israel was not hindered by Joshua's failure or the Gibeonites' deception. But he used their actions to incorporate a people who were formerly pagan into the people of Israel. To be part of the redeemed people. We might go so far as saying that God used Joshua and the leaders to be easily taken in by the ruse of the Gibeonites as the way that the Gibeonites would be included into the people of Israel. What would have happened if Joshua had asked for counsel from God? We don't know the answer to this question. Here's my suspicion. That if Joshua had asked counsel from the Lord, he would have been better positioned to be a faithful representative, to have lived out his name and reflected the reality that Yahweh is salvation. I don't know how it would have played out, but it seems to me that Joshua would have been more faithful and that there would have been evidence of God's mercy displayed in a more prominent and distinct way. So what's happening in Joshua chapter 9? It's a story of God's mercy. It's a story of God fulfilling his promise to bless the nations through Abraham. Finally, some quick implications for us. Firstly, seek God's mercy. I wonder if you're here today and you're in a similar situation to the Gibeonites. You feel trapped in your sin. You have a sense that you deserve God's judgment because of your sin. You feel like there's impending judgment and destruction. What's one of the messages of Joshua 8? One of the messages of Joshua 8 today is God is a God of mercy. A God of salvation. And this side of the cross, we know that he has sent his son Jesus Christ to suffer the judgment that we deserve. That we might experience the inheritance of eternal life. So application or implication one from Joshua 9. Seek God's mercy. Maybe you are truly a Christian. And you're doubting God's mercy. Consider the mercy of God in Joshua 9. I think we should respond with prayerfulness. As we think about Joshua's failure, our failure to seek the Lord's will doesn't just merely impact us, but it impacts how we function as God's representatives. It impacts those around us when we fail to be humble and to seek wisdom and direction from the Lord. I think it also prompts us to be prayerful as we face complex situations. Ethical dilemmas, where we feel like there's conflict between one choice and another. Pray for the Lord's wisdom that he might work through them for his glory and for the good of others. And finally, praise. Praise that God extends his mercy to people who trust him. Praise that God extends mercy to imperfect people. We might look at the Gibeonites and say, 
Look, look at how deceptive, cunning, like they didn't come with integrity. They don't deserve salvation. Do any of us? Do any of us come to the Lord in a place of perfection? No. We come broken, sinful people, and we come as people needing mercy. Praise God. He extends mercy to undeserving sinners. What a demonstration here in Joshua 9 of God's mercy to evidently undeserving people. Praise God that despite imperfect people living in an imperfect world, God accomplishes his purposes. Despite some of the intentions or some of the actions of the Gibeonites, despite the failures of the leadership of Israel, God still exercised mercy to the people of Gibeon. Think about gospel presentation. Does the effectiveness of the gospel depend upon our perfection, our perfect expression of the gospel, our perfect timing? Praise the Lord it doesn't. Praise the Lord that He is a merciful God who works despite our imperfections. Finally, as we live in this time of the new covenant, praise the Lord for our union with Christ, where Jew and Gentile are joined together and we are one in Christ. I want to conclude this morning reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are indeed a merciful God.